So our, our speaker tonight, uh, Rabbi Dr. Josh Fagelson, is from my hometown of Chicago, or at least that's where he lives now, right. in Skokie. And uh, he received his bachelor's at Yale, received his uh, doctorate at, at Northwestern, uh, and was working at Northwestern Hillel after going to YCT Rabbinical School, which is also where I went in New York, and um, is the founding director of Ask Big Questions, which is a new exciting initiative through Hillel to foster dialogue and questioning and uh, learning in more nuanced ways on, on campuses. Very involved in conversations around, uh, uh, around higher, higher education. And it has a book coming out. Uh, his dissertation was on, uh, around ideas around Rabbi Yitz Greenberg and, and higher education. And a um, very interesting person, a friend, a colleague, someone I look up to greatly, and has a fascinating topic today. So thank you for being with us. Great. Thank tonight. you, Shmuley. Thanks for the invitation, and thanks for, for hosting me. Um, I, I, like, I can claim to fame, I think, Shmuley, that I gave you, I might, might have given you your first job in the rabbinic world when you were a rabbinical student, and Shmuley came out to be our mashkiach, to be the kosher supervisor during Pesach at Northwestern Hillel, and I have vivid memories of you checking lettuce for bugs. It was, it was, it was, it was yeah, it's true. It's true. But you got to eat, uh, so that's good. Um, that's good. That's good. So, um, so thank you. It's great to be here. Um, so, and we weren't sure exactly what size crowd. I actually, I, I, I never do this, but I have a prepared text. Um, and also, I know that the type on here, all of you have perfect uh, vision, I know, but I know that I, you know, that we could have made that a little bigger, is my guess. So I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna try to do this as informally as I can, but I'm actually gonna use what I've prepared because that will help you, uh, that will help all of us with the with the text that we have here. So, um, as Shmuley mentioned, for for most of the last five years, I've spent my time uh, teaching and thinking and writing about how we ask questions and how the questions we ask shape, shape the conversations that we have. With the help of talented and intelligent colleagues, I've developed a theory about the kinds of questions that lead to conversations that help develop trust among groups of people. We call this our theory of big questions. Capital B, capital Q. Um, most of the questions that animate our public life are what my colleagues and I call hard questions, capital H. Uh, what should we do about climate change? Well, how do we solve our enormous pension and budget problems in my home state of Illinois? How can we make college affordable? What should be American policy in the Middle East? These are very important questions. They require a lot of information and expertise to answer. And chances are that if you're uh, at a dinner party with nine other people where the conversation turns to a hard question like one of these, within five minutes the scene will probably look something like this. A couple of people have moved to the couch to watch the game. Three people have slipped off to the kitchen to help get dessert ready. One is in the bathroom. Two are still at the table, but they're doing this underneath. Right? And the two people who think they really know enough to have an intelligent debate about the question are going at it. That's what dinner with hard questions looks like. And my guess is at Shabbos dinners this week in advance of the Iowa caucuses, that's probably what a lot of Shabbat dinner tables will look like. But big questions are different than hard questions. Where hard questions require expertise, or at least faked expertise, anyone can answer a big question. Big questions share the importance of hard questions. They're questions that matter to everyone, but they're questions that lead to stories, not debates. Where do you feel at home? How does technology change us? What have you learned so far? These are examples of big questions. They lead to reflection, they lead to stories, they lead to wisdom sharing. Unlike the dinner party with hard questions at the center, a dinner animated by big questions is likely to stay together. It is likely to lead to listening, to a sense of community, to the feeling of a larger heart. So that's the essence of the theory of big questions, that they're questions that matter to everyone and that everyone can answer. Now you can go home. That's, that, that, that's my main contribution to theory of questions. But there are some other rules of big questions that we've developed, and one of them is that big questions are directed at the second person or the first person plural, at you or at we. The very first big question I ever stumbled across was when we printed on a banner at advertising the high holidays at Northwestern University. What will you do better this year? Like all big questions, 
It speaks to the person reading it. The question, the question engages, engages the passerby, the person who reads it or hears it. What will you do better this year? Where do you feel at home? When do you feel secure? This is one of the important features of big questions, that they engage us as subjects and that they engage our hearts. By speaking to us, big questions invite us into a conversation that seems like it has been going on for a long time, an eternal conversation. But in the emerging science of big questions, it turns out that there's an important difference between the second person singular or plural and the first person plural. Consider these two questions. For whom are you responsible? And for whom are we responsible? For whom are you responsible speaks to you, the reader or hearer of the question, as an individual. It certainly invites you into this eternal question, and it does so with a sense of urgency. When you read or hear this question, you're likely to start thinking about parents or children or friends or teammates. Maybe you think about students or employees or campers or other people in your charge. But the way the question is phrased, you think about them as an individual in reference to your own story. But now listen again. For whom are we responsible? What changes? All we did was replace you with we, and yet the horizon of this question is radically wider. Before, my focus was on the word responsible and thinking about the people and things in my care. But in this version, I'm also thinking about the question, who is this we the question is referring to? Am I a part of the we? For whom are we responsible? Does it mean us here in this synagogue or in Phoenix or in this room? We who might read the question in print or we, could we refer to all of us as human beings? For whom are we responsible as humans? The move from you to we introduces a whole new set of considerations into a big question. It's risky because some people might see that question and say, hey, I'm not part of your we. I never consented to being part of your group. In the culture of distrust that many of us inhabit, we may look at a question directed at we and out of habit become suspicious. Who is, this, who is the asker of this question? What big interest, corporate, government, or otherwise, is manipulating me? Who presumes to make me a part of their group? Nobody else can speak for me. I'm not part of anyone's we, and certainly if I didn't uh, give my consent. What is so troubling about this is that the distrust that fuels suspicion over using we is both a cause and a result of our inability to use we. It's a vicious circle. The less we refer to we, the lower our levels of trust. The lower our levels of trust, the less we can refer to we. Just ask any rabbi who tries to speak about Israel these days. <laughs> the stakes of this conundrum are high, for we are now at a moment in human history when our ability to live together in communities, in nations, and on the planet itself is being challenged as never before. The adaptive challenges we face <clears throat> as citizens of Arizona, of the United States, of the world are enormous, and they will only be solved if we can find ways to live together. And that starts with recovering the ability to imagine ourselves as a collective with the ability to say we. It all brings to mind the Adrian Rich poem in those years, which is the first source on your sheet. Maybe you can get a volunteer. So if, some, if, someone is, if someone is adventurous enough to read uh, Adrian Rich in that uh, small type. Go ahead. In those years, in those years, people will say we lost track of the meaning of we. You, we found ourselves reduced to, and the whole thing... Reduced to I. Reduced to I. <laughs> reduced to I. And the whole thing became silly, ironic, terrible. We were trying to live a personal life we could bear witness to. But the great dark birds of history screamed and plunged into our personal weather. They were headed somewhere else, but their beaks and pinions drove along the shore through the rags of fog, where we stood, saying, I. So what's the way out of this conundrum? How can we rebuild trust? How can we recover the ability to think and speak of we? Tonight, those are the questions I want to explore with you. Our starting point is the book of Kings, Sefer Malachim, in the Bible, and the description of the most successful of the ancient Israelite kings, Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. Chief among Solomon's virtues as a king is his wisdom. And in, in, well, this is the second source. In chapter 5, 
verse 9, as it describes it. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, than Etan the Ezrachite, and Heman, and Kalkol, and Darda, the sons of Machol, and his fame was in all the nations round about. And he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005, and he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the, well, out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fishes. And there came of all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon's wisdom was the stuff of legend. And Judaism traditionally ascribes to him authorship of much of our wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, as well as Song of Songs. A number of features are intriguing in the Tanakh's description of Shlomo's wisdom here. In verse 12, Solomon's wisdom is associated with boundless creativity. In verse 13, it connotes a breadth of interests and connections. In verse 14, wisdom is associated with both fame and openness to interacting with people of every background, station, and walk of life. But what most strikes me in reading this account is the phrase at the very beginning of the passage. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much, and rochav lev, largeness of heart. Solomon's wisdom is not simply about intellectual breadth. It is about a breadth and openness of heart. That open heart leads to his ability to learn, to connect, to receive others, and to create. The account of Solomon is clearly an idealized portrait, full of flourishes seemingly intended to highlight not just who Solomon was historically, but who the author of Kings imagined and hoped the ideal king would be. And in constructing its account, the author of Sefer Malachim, the book of Kings, seems to be quite intentionally crafting a portrait of Solomon to stand as a photo negative of the other great king, yet the most evil king in the Bible, Paro, Pharaoh. If we look at the opening chapter of Sefer Shemot, book of Exodus, this is source number three, we find that, like Shlomo, Paro also deals in chokhmah, in wisdom. Yet his wisdom is the inversion of Solomon's wisdom, where Solomon's wisdom is expansive and welcoming and learning from all living creatures. Pharaoh's wisdom is cunning, conniving, and shrewd. And you see this here in uh, verse 8. And a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the children of Israel, the people of the children of Israel are mightier than us. Let us deal wisely with them. Let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there befall us any war, they also join themselves unto our enemies and fight against us and get them up out of the land. Pharaoh invokes wisdom, nitchakma, from the word chachma. Pharaoh invokes wisdom, but unlike Solomon's wisdom, Pharaoh's is a strategic kind of wisdom rooted in fear. Pharaoh shares another similarity with Solomon. He uses the powers of a sovereign. We see this in two ways. First, he appoints sarei misim, taskmasters, over the Israelites to enslave them and compel them to build his store cities. This word, mas, is an unusual word in the Bible, exclusively used in connection with kings. Besides the first chapter of Exodus, we find it in only two other places. In the last chapter of the book of Esther, where Ahasuerus imposes a mas, usually translated as a tax on his 127 provinces. The other, as you may have guessed, is in the story of Solomon, in that very same chapter 5 that we read before, in verse 27. And King Solomon raised a levy, a mas, out of all Israel. And the mas was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month by courses. A month they were in Lebanon and two months at home, and Adoniram was over the mas. Solomon is, in this respect, the same as Pharaoh. He uses his kingly power 
to compel the bodies of others to do his bidding. And we should note the resentment he causes in doing so will ultimately be the undoing of his kingdom. Adoniram, the person who he appoints to be over the mass later in, uh, in, in the book of Kings, is um, murdered in a revolt because he's, uh, he's making these 10,000 men a month you know, do this hard labor to build the temple in Jerusalem. Yet unlike Pharaoh, whose exercise of power was rooted in self-aggrandizement and fear, Solomon's flexing of his kingly muscle is in the service of building a home for God, the temple in Jerusalem, which will, in the words of Isaiah, be a house of prayer for all people. The second way Solomon and Pharaoh are linked in this sense of exercising power is in the way they use the ultimate power of a sovereign, not just to compel people to work, but to take their lives. And the Bible is brilliant in once again crafting Solomon as the photo-negative of Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 1, we know, of course, that Pharaoh ultimately decrees that the entire Egyptian nation is to be on the lookout for Jewish baby boys, and if they find them, to kill them. In verse 22, it says, And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall let live. Pharaoh is not only shrewd, he is ruthless using his power, his sovereign power, not only to compel servitude, but to take the lives of innocents. Solomon likewise uses his sovereign power over the life of a child. In one of the most famous of the stories about him in chapter 3 of Kings, Solomon is confronted by two women who both claim to be the mother of the same child. And here you see this source uh, is, in cha- is source number 4. Um, and so look at verse 16. Right? Uh, then, there came, then came there two women that were harlots unto the king and stood before him. Is somebody, is, would somebody read us from verse 17 to the end of this chapter? Go ahead. Thank you. And the one woman said, Oh, my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house. And I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after I was delivered that this woman was delivered also. And we were together. There were no strangers with us in the house, save these two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlay it. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thy handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, he was dead. But when I had looked well at it in the morning, behold, it was not my son who might be there. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this said, Thus they spoke before the king. Then said the king, The one saith, This is my son that liveth, and thy son is the dead. And the other saith, Nay, but thy son is the dead, and my son is the living. And the king said, Fetch me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then spoke the woman who the living child was unto the king, for her heart yearned upon her son. And she said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, It shall be neither mine nor thine. Divide it. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in the hands of the judge. Thank you. This is the story, of course, from which we get the adjective Salomonic to describe a particular kind of wisdom, the wisdom of a judge to solve the most difficult cases, those cases that challenge our very ability to live together. We will return to this idea a little later on. Uh, But here we just need to contrast the way that Paro uses the ability of a sovereign to take the the life of an innocent with Solomon, who does the same thing. We don't know what would have happened. Right? What, he says, fetch me a sword. The only reason it works is because the two women both believe that that threat is real, and then the truth comes out. So somehow he's using that same power, but he uses that power. We, we can't really believe that he really intended to go through with it. But he uses that power in a way that is serving truth um, and justice and not in, in, the, in the way that Pharaoh uses it as a despot. What we haven't spoken about yet, however, is the final and perhaps most important link between Solomon and Pharaoh, and that is the link of their hearts. As the story of the Israelites in Egypt continues, Pharaoh's heart becomes harder and harder, 
kaved, which might also be translated as heavy and thick. Kaved is linguistically related to kavod, glory or honor. Thus, the glory or honor of the king's office is something within which Pharaoh becomes more and more hidden, further and further isolated and alone. His heart becomes heavy, his rule becomes shaky, his decisions become ever more narrow-minded. Pharaoh is not the bearer of the broad-hearted wisdom of Solomon, but rather its opposite, a narrow-hearted suspicion. But Solomon, well, he is a different story. Just after he becomes king of Israel, just before this story of the two women, um, Solomon is visited by God in a dream. God offers him anything he wants, and Solomon says something truly remarkable, and this is back in, uh, in the source we just read, but if you look above it to verse 6. And Solomon said, Thou hast shown unto thy servant David, my father, great kindness, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee, and thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy, king, thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give thy servant therefore a lev shomea, a listening heart, an understanding heart, to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this thy great people? Solomon can ask for anything. The genie bottle is open before him. And rather than riches or power, he simply asks for a lev shomea, a listening heart. This, I would argue, is the key to understanding Solomon, the idealized king. When the Bible tells the story of the greatest human sovereign, the story it tells is not rooted in his accomplishments in battle or in his political genius or his great oratory. Rather, it is rooted in a humble request for a listening heart. In verse 10, it continues, And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, Neither have you asked for riches for yourself nor for the life of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your word. Lo, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, a lev chacham v'navon, so that there have been none like you before you, neither shall there any arise like you after you. Solomon's listening heart, his lev shomea, becomes the key to his wisdom, and his wisdom becomes the key to his exercise of power. I said earlier that this uh, talk was about how we can renew our trust in one another as citizens. So why begin with an account of two rulers? Because in a democracy, we are all sovereigns. I actually didn't have in mind when, when I wrote this how apt this was going to be on the eve of uh, primaries. That's really good. In a democracy, we're all sovereigns. Every one of us has the capacity to be Solomon or Paro, a wise chacham, or a hard-hearted rasha. And if we are to nurture and maintain a healthy democracy, we need to cultivate levavot shomim, listening and wise and open hearts. We need, as individuals and as a collective, to strive to be Solomons. How do we do that? To answer that question, I want to explore two thinkers. The first is Danielle Allen, and the second is Parker Palmer, and neither of them are Jewish. <laughs> Danielle Allen is a political theorist who now heads Harvard's Safra Center for Ethics. In her 2004 book, Talking to Strangers, Allen observes that democracy holds out the promise to every citizen that our desires will be reflected in policy, precisely because each of us is a sovereign. And yet, of course, none of us, not even the wealthiest among us, experiences that, even the Koch brothers. We are all let down. We are all disappointed. We all have to deal with the fact that despite our sovereign status as citizens of a democracy, our wills are quite frequently not reflected in political decisions. As an aside, this understanding of democratic action seems intertwined with a theory of leadership put forward by Allen's Harvard colleagues, Ron Heifetz and Marty Linsky that leadership is the art of letting people down at a rate they can absorb. 
As a result of this reality, Allen argues, the, pra- the practice of sacrifice is central to the life of a functioning democracy. We all sacrifice for each other every day. When those of us on the losing end of a political decision or who simply don't see ourselves reflected in our government do not resort to disobedience or violence to attack the fabric of society, but rather continue to abide by the rule of law, even when we are not happy with the law itself. When we make such sacrifices, we are quite literally keeping society together. Society in a democracy rests on the reciprocal sacrifices we make for each other. But what does it take to make those sacrifices, Alan asks. First, it takes making sure that, sac- that the sacrifice is distributed evenly and not heaped on one group disproportionately. It is one thing to sacrifice for the common good. It is another to always be the group asked to make the sacrifices and to feel that you are constantly being asked to swallow your losses while others seem to win more frequently. Second, and related to this, Alan notes that we also have to attend to the feelings of disappointment and resentment that come up when we're on the losing end. Absorbing those feelings requires reservoirs of trust, reservoirs that are depleted with every loss we endure. So we have to constantly be replenishing those reservoirs, those deposits of trust. Third, we also have to perhaps think differently about our ideal vision of society. Allen notes that beginning with Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan and continuing through much of the political theory of the Enlightenment, the ideal vision of democracy rested on a notion of unity. Think of our own e pluribus unum. If a democratic nation is made up of a group of citizens who are each sovereign, then how does the government acquire authority? According to Hobbes and others, it comes about through an imagined moment of unanimity when the entire populace authorized the government to have power over their lives. But Allen points out that this image is not only fanciful, it is actually dangerous, because it sets up a vision in which we are striving to return to that moment of unanimity. If only we could all find a united will, a united purpose, a united mission, we could restore our faith in democracy. Under such circumstances, people who disagree with the majority view aren't simply the losers who have to acquiesce, they become the people who prevent unanimity from happening. Difference and dissent thus become things to be squelched or perhaps not voiced in the first place. For Alan, e e pluribus unum is a dangerous aspiration. Rather than unanimity, Alan suggests that what Hobbes could and should have written about was a vision of wholeness, Not a moment when all citizens unite in a single view, but an ongoing social relationship in which citizens of diverging and conflicting positions negotiate and sacrifice for one another. Wholeness, unlike unanimity, makes room for difference. It allows society to bend but not break. It allows for difference to be contained and for people with differences, that is all of us, to coexist. Here again, we hear a lesson from Solomon, whose name in Hebrew is Shlomo, as in shalom, peace, or shlemut, wholeness, where Paro cannot abide the difference of the Israelites who live in his land, Solomon embraces and contains differences. In his wide reading and writing, in the many languages he speaks, in his interactions with every form of creature and person, and I would suggest even potentially in his many marriages, including to Pharaoh's daughter. The overall picture we see of Solomon is of, something and, uh, is of something of a Renaissance man, reaching out to understand and contain the wondrous reality of his kingdom and creation. Even in the case of the two women, he does not order that the lying woman be killed. She's allowed to live, and implicitly her loss is acknowledged. And thus we get a picture of Solomon as someone who trusts himself, trusts others, and engenders trust. That trust, I would argue, is rooted in Solomon's Lev Shomea, his expansive listening heart. And yet, with Alan, I worry that our society today is both predicated on a hard-hearted Hobbesian vision and reinforces that hard-heartedness through suspicion and distrust. In the passage from which she draws the title of her book, Alan notes that one of the earliest lessons we teach children about their lives as citizens is this. Don't talk to strangers. Think about how corrosive a message that is. 
If a healthy civic life depends on our ability to sacrifice for one another, and not only for those others we know, but also for the faceless others with whom we share our polity, then the message, don't talk to strangers, does not build trust, it erodes it. And with that erosion of trust goes our collective heart. Solomon talked to strangers, Pharaoh did not. And with the message we communicate to our children, we seem to be raising more Pharaohs than Solomon's. What would a different vision, a more Solomonic vision, look like? In one of the later passages of the book, Alan invites us to imagine a reality in which all of us can encounter the world with a sense of sovereignty. And that's source number six here. And maybe I can get another volunteer to read so that I can drink water. Please. Don't talk to strangers. That is the lesson for you all. Before you all. Isaac dropped to the ground when they bumped up against the strangers of Canaan, along to those still in their political minority. If the experience of the most powerful citizens in the United States is any guide, talking to strangers is empowering. The president is among the few citizens for whom the polity holds no intimidating strangers. Presidents greet everyone and look all citizens in the eye. This is not merely because they are always campaigning, but because they have achieved the fullest possible political maturity. Um, also, just note, she wrote this in 2004. So, you know, think of... <laughs> what, she's, she's encompassing all presidents here, right? Not anyone in particular. Their scheme with strangers expresses a sense of freedom and Allen's president is not merely the office holder of the presidency of the United States, but more profoundly the idealized citizen, the citizen who possesses a lev shomea, a listening and broad heart, who can engage and learn from her fellow citizens, from the natural world, from the entirety of creation into which she has been born. Her four-year-old, by contrast, is Pharaoh, not a four-year-old by age, but a political minor by temperament suspicious, distrustful, and possessed of a lave kaved, a narrow and hard, a hard and narrow heart. And her charge to us is to aspire to be and to cultivate in one another the listening hearts of mature citizens. We do that with the most basic of acts, talking to strangers. Kigerim heyitem be'eretz Mitzrayim, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. These words provide the rationale for no fewer than 36 of the Torah's 613 commandments. We are commanded to love the stranger, to not oppress the stranger, to care for the stranger and provide for them, to help our neighbors and return their lost property. But as Danielle Allen so helpfully reminds us, we can, and in fact we must, engage in an even more basic act. We must simply talk to the stranger, and not only for their benefit, but for ours. If we fail to talk to strangers, if we fail to teach our children not to talk to, if in fact we teach our children not to talk to strangers, we start down the path of distrust that leads to inequality, alienation, exploitation, and ultimately slavery and genocide. As much as we do not want to be the victims, we also do not want to be the perpetrators. And it all begins with talking to strangers, and that begins with a listening heart. In this call for an open-hearted, listening-hearted engagement with each other, Alan is joined by educator, writer, and activist Parker Palmer, whose most recent book is entitled Healing the Heart of Democracy. Full disclosure, he's on my advisory board. Uh, <laughs> uh, Palmer offers us another way to understand Solomon and Pharaoh and the examples they set for us today. His definition of citizenship is helpful. Citizenship is a way of being in the world rooted in the knowledge that I am a member of a vast community of human and non-human beings 
that I depend on for essentials I could never provide for myself. In Palmer's understanding, citizenship is more than the basis for asserting our rights as individuals. As it is for Alan, citizenship is also a way of mentally, spiritually, and physically inhabiting our relationships with one another and rooting those relationships in a framework of mutual responsibility. The title of Palmer's book is based on the work of his teacher, Robert Bella, Habits of the Heart, which explored modern American citizenship in the 1980s. Bella took the title of his book from Alexis de Tocqueville, who noted two centuries ago that it was not only a matter of the legal framework of the United States, but the manner in which we interact with one another as citizens and communities that imbued American democracy with its particular flavor. Those interactions, those relationships, were informed by certain habits of the heart, habits which Bella already saw were fraying in the 1980s and which Palmer urgently calls us to renew. Palmer identifies five habits of the heart we need to restore, reclaim, and practice if our democracy is to regain its health. And I'm going to summarize them, but they're listed in source number seven. First, we must understand that we are all in this together, that our success or failure as individuals is bound up with the success or failure of all of us. The mind turns to the image of Solomon and his expansive understanding of the interrelatedness of all beings, the inevitable ways we all depend on one another. Second, Palmer says, we must develop an appreciation of the value of otherness. This point flows from the first. If we are interdependent, then we have to come to value our, we have to come to value our diversity to approach our, one another with curiosity and wonder rather than with fear and suspicion. And this leads to Palmer's third point. We must cultivate the ability to hold tension in life-giving ways. As he writes, the genius of the human heart lies in its capacity to use these tensions to generate insight, energy, and new life. If we are to honor our diversity and our differences, we have to actively cultivate our abilities to sustain difference and not eliminate it. Pharaoh is our negative example, the leader whose fear and suspicion leads to elimination of the other. Solomon is our positive example of the citizen who honors and embraces diversity. And on this point, we are also reminded of Alan's essential point about Hobbes. It is not unanimity we should seek, but wholeness, the shlemut of Shlomo. Fourth, Palmer says, we must generate a sense of personal voice and agency. It is not enough for us to acknowledge that diversity exists in a passive sense. We are not merely spectators in an audience. We are participants in the conversation and drama of life. And that invites and demands of us to contribute what we can. And this leads to Palmer's fifth and final point. We must strengthen our capacity to create community. Action doesn't just happen by individuals alone. It happens in community. Palmer cites the example of Rosa Parks, whose courageous leadership in the Montgomery bus boycott stemmed not only from her inner personal strength, but also from the support and strength of others in her community, people with whom she had had long conversations, people whose lives were interwoven with hers. Palmer reminds us that this doesn't mean something unattainable. He writes, the steady companionship of two or three kindred spirits can kindle the courage we need to speak and act as citizens. What is important to remember in all of these points is that all of these points flow from the same place, the listening heart of Solomon. That heart, the heart of the citizen, the heart of democracy, is the heart we need to nurture today. This is the heart that enables us to live in community, to embrace diversity, to find our voice, and to listen to the voices of others. It is the heart that allows us to take responsibility for ourselves and for each other and to trust that others take responsibility for us. In Hebrew, the word for responsibility is arevut, which is lingu linguistically connected to the word ta'arovet, a mixture, as in a stew or a soup, and also the word eruv, eruv the mixture that creates and defines community. This is one of the wonderful things about Hebrew, the way in which all these concepts become linked through language. Responsibility is connected to soup, is connected to community, all through the words arevut, ta'arovet, and eruv. One more word connected with this word, family, is the word erev, evening, a time of mixing when the sun sets but it isn't dark, when we don't know if it's still day or has become night. As we all know, Jewish days begin in the evening, based on the very first day of creation, as recounted in Bereshit, Yom Echad. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. 
Evening is when we begin our days. Shabbat begins with Erev Shabbat on Friday afternoon. Yom Kippur begins with Erev Yom Kippur before the sun sets. Pesach begins in the late morning when we stop eating chametz. This is a special feature of Jewish time, the primacy of evening. It is as though the day reaches out to begin affecting us even before it has arrived. Ritually observant Jews are keenly aware from day to day and week to week what time the sun sets, and we can sense it in our bones when the shadows grow long. We are tuned to evening. I'd like to suggest that there is a message to us in this, a message about community and mutual responsibility, a message about the heart. Keep reaching out, keep bringing in, writes the Jewish poet Marge Piercy. In the same way that the day is not really a discrete unit but reaches out, so too we are not monads. We reach out to one another, whether we like it or not. It's simply a fact of life. We are not here alone. We are not islands, but rather, as Emmanuel Levinas suggests, we are responsible for one another by the sheer fact of our existence. Or as Abraham Joshua Heschel famously put it, while some are guilty, all are responsible. Kol Yisrael arevim zebazah, all of Israel, all of us are responsible for one another. Which brings us back to we, that very difficult but essential word, we are all responsible for one another. Kol Yisrael arevim zebazah. If we are to have any hope of meeting the challenges that confront us, we must restore our ability to imagine ourselves together, and not just as a Jewish people, but as Americans and as a global community. We must reclaim the power of the word we. We must learn to talk again, to listen again, and to trust again. And so in closing, and we'll take questions after this, but I'll close my formal portion here now, I would like to bless you, as I hope you will bless me, with a lev shomea, a listening heart. Uh, I bless you, as I hope you will bless me, with a community of friends and family and fellow citizens whose hearts will commingle with yours, who will support and challenge and comfort you, who will live with you in a community of interdependence and mutual responsibility. And I bless all of us, those of us here in this room and our many neighbors and countrymen and fellow travelers on the planet beyond these walls with a heart that can learn to trust a heart that will talk with strangers, a heart that will listen to their stories, a heart that will bear the heartbreak of the world and break open in life-giving ways. So thank you. Um, and I would love to hear uh, your questions and, and, and comments. Uh, cousin Ted first. <laughs> uh, you started off with your remarks about Looking at the last portion, the last sentence here, call Israel, Arabim, that's all Israel. I think we have to broaden, so we probably have to broaden our sense of, uh, of who the we is, who's directed in that. Um, but I think just as, and I think, you know, I think it's, um, this is, right, this is one of those great questions, but I think that um, clearly we have particular responsibilities towards each other as a we, as a Jewish collective. And we can take that same impulse and apply that to, I think all Americans are responsible to each other, right? And we could say that in a certain sense, all people are responsible to each other. And so, um, yes and. <laughs> what happens when there's, Kobe Israel is not allowed or not permitted to be responsible for others. There's sort of, you know, Jews are Jews and there's and now you know what it is to be a Jew, right? I mean that, that, that that's the question, right? So I think we have to hold we have to hold both of those in our uh, uh, you know in our hearts like that 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 that's the that's the tension uh, precisely. So I don't have an answer to it. I think that's but that's the question you have to you have to ask. Yeah. for the other people. Mm -hmm. 
because that's how, you know, from generation to generation, and that that is the Jewish values. That's one of the Jewish values. That you're not only for yourself, you are for the community. Mm -hmm. And therefore there is the more of the tzedakah and all that kind of thing. Coming to the United States, I think what's changed has been that uh, the American value is the individualism, the rugged individual. Mm -hmm. It's not conducive Especially to being here. responsible <laughs> for a community. And I think what happened to, um, you know, since the turn of the century as the Jews started coming here, successive generations have sort of taught their children the individualism. You are responsible to yourself. You need to accomplish as much as you can, sort of regardless almost how it affects the rest of the community. And there has been more of that. And therefore, we've got a dichotomy now with the younger generations not feeling very responsible not very responsible, and they are sort of going on their own, and so how do we bring it back? It, it, it's a real dichotomy. Yeah, I think, well, so I, I think there's a, lot, there's a lot I agree with. I would also say that, that I think that um, this generation, I mean, the current generation of, of uh, you know, college students, young adults, let's say, um, you know, there, there are some contradictory impulses, because on the one hand, they're definitely not generation me. They are, you know, this, this thing here, right, allows you to be very me-focused, but it's also very social, right? And so, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're constantly, you know, they're in, they are in relationships where, you know, my kids stay in touch, you know, they text with their friends from camp who are in all sorts of cities all over the place, and they, they use this as a tool for being in relationships. Now, what the quality of those relationships are, is there a face and a body that goes with that, or is that just sort of a disembodied figure right on the other end of the, of, of, of the iPhone? Um, I think there's some real questions. But, but a lot of people will talk about that it's actually, in a certain sense, generation we. There are, you know, people are simultaneously more connected and more shallowly connected than they have been before. Right? So um, I think that a, a huge piece of it is, um, you know, I, I, well, twice today, I've done an exercise with different groups of people, one with the fellows here just before and one with a group at, at ASU, where I ask people, um, what do good conversations look like, right? And where do good conversations happen? And always, nobody ever tells me a great conversation happened for me by texting, <laughs> right? It's always, yeah, you showed up. There's people. There's an actual person here. Right? And, they, and you can see them, and you can touch them, and you can smell them, and like, they exist. Uh, and I think that um, human beings, thank God, we have a, an innate need to actually encounter other people. Um, we need to be, I think, building systems of, in our lives where we come together and where that is a natural thing that we do, um, and that's part of the natural rhythm of life. Um, one of, the, one of the people that wrote about this you know, most powerfully about 15 years ago was Robert Putnam in a book called Bowling Alone, um, a social scientist at Harvard who, who talked about the, that the number of people bowling is the same, but the number of people registered in bowling leagues is way down. Right? So people are going bowling, but they're just doing it alone. They're not, going, they're not joining leagues. And, so, and then he correlated that with lots of other social science data about, you know, backyards versus front porches, et cetera, et cetera, all these ways that we've sort of created these little enclaves. Um, so I, I think, to me, the, a part of the answer to your question is we have to think very consciously about, well, what do the physical structures of our communities look like? Um, what, kind of, uh, what kind of communal activities? How do we usher our uh, young people and ourselves participate in communal activities? Um, what kind of conversations do we have? All those sorts of things. So, and I'm speaking to the, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys are all out on a Tuesday night at Shul. So, you know, um, yes, I, I understand it, but thank you. I, um, I love your talk. But I, my first question for you is the relationship between particularism and universalism in this regard. Um, what is the unique Jewish contribution you make, if you believe there is one, in regards to? Yeah, it's um, a great question. Uh, I think that um, you know we have 
one of the great uh, assets uh, and treasures of the Jewish people is obviously is Torah and is the and is the tradition, especially the um, the tradition of learning and the tradition of of, of legal scholarship that comes out of uh, that that comes you know that comes through centuries and millennia, and uh, and here I I guess I'm I'm finding myself somewhat quoting Yitz Greenberg, you know, um, my teacher and dissertation subject, um, that uh, there's, there's a wonderful, when we, when, we, when we weigh these kinds of questions, when we weigh competing values, right, halacha is all about weighing competing values, right? Why do we cover the challah on Friday night? Because you have two values there. You need to make kiddush on wine, but the proper order of brachot is that if you have wheat, and wine in front of you, you make a bracha over the wheat first, but you have to make, but you want to make kiddush first. So how do you make kiddush and not and 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 balance that value? You cover up the bread. That's where we get like the notion: don't embarrass the challah. The challah shouldn't be embarrassed. But really, what, really, what you're doing is you're saying I'm making it halakhically possible now to you know to do both things. I want to honor Shabbat and make kiddush, and I also want to do the brachot in the proper order, right? So we have ways of sort of doing that. Um, that's an example I think that was taught to me by Saul Berman, I'm pretty sure. Um, and I think most of, most of our halachic tradition is about like, how we weigh competing values. It's very rare when something is just a slam dunk, it's clear. So how do we weigh that? Um, and how do we apply that in a, in, in a real uh, situation, a real world situation? This is one of the ways where you know, some people would argue that we have much more common, as Jews, we have much more in common with Islam than with Christianity because Islam is also a legal uh, legal-based tradition, right, in religion, whereas um, Christianity is not. And, um, and so, you know, we can access that um, in, when we talk about, like, combining values and policy choices. I think that's one way, right, that we can sort of bring that sensibility and that way of thinking, uh, that way of thinking and rigor, you know, head combined with heart to, to these discussions. Um, and I think, obviously, there's also, like, a tremendous moral impulse. You know, what is our foundational event that we do every year is the Seder, right? And so we always go back to the, the, the um, that we remember the, uh, the situation and our own experience of being strangers. We start from that place of exile. And I think calling, there, there's a prophetic voice for us, you know, to access as well, of reminding people there are strangers. Let's be on the lookout. I think about right now, my, you know, my oldest is turning just turned 13, he's having his bar mitzvah in a couple weeks, and when I think about what I want to, I'm writing like, a, I'm working on a letter to him, and one of the things that I want to really say to him is like, um, as Jews, I think we don't just think about the people who are in the room, we're thinking also about who's not here, right, and who could be here, and who could be welcomed in. What's fascinating about your answer is that, um, that by educating and engaging our children in Judaism, we're actually best preparing them for citizenship, in a sense. That through Seder, like experience through education of this yeah. stuff, that's actually what it means to translate that to Judaism. I'm sorry, it wasn't my word, but yours. But yeah, well, I actually, and I, and I, I people are afraid of the yeah. Jewishness because yeah. it's counter citizenship in a sense. No, I, I, and I very much believe, and I think Jonathan Sachs is a wonderful model of this, and we, I think we spoke about this earlier, that I really, I think he provides a model, and I certainly believe that to be a, um, an engaged citizen, Right means also being engaged in the community that you come from and knowing where you come from and your story, and um, and to be and to be an engaged Jew also means to be an engaged citizen in the world. Right, that, that you have to work both sides of that line simultaneously. So, so post prerogative. So we see we see in, in dealing with the erosion of societal trust, we see a lot of fear, and that fear I think often leads to one of two reactions from from uh, minorities. But, and, and, you know, any faction, let's say minority groups, either build the walls higher um, or uh, letting go of one's unique identity, mm. right? And so in the first camp, we see this among groups like the ultra-Orthodox who say, build the walls higher, no interaction, no television, no university, can't interact aside from business. And the other camp of assimilation, we don't see the obviously see a lot of examples of that too. And so my, my question for you is, who is doing the middle really well in who is doing the middle really well of, I am deeply committed to my unique narrative and values, yeah. and yet I'm not building up higher walls nor abandoning those, my uniqueness. Who's doing that well, would you identify, either among Jewish groups or beyond Jewish groups, and, and how are they doing that? Yeah. 
I think there's, a, there's an exciting sort of Jewish, emerging Jewish center that I see. Um, I think, you know, when I w watch like um, Rick Jacobs' uh, speech at the, at the biennial, the reform biennial this year, um, and when I, you know, what I know of him, I mean, I think the message that he's creating and what I see in a lot of reform synagogues right now is like a wonderful sort of return to, you know, it's been a 20 year process, but like, you know, a real reclamation of tradition and, 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 and dealing with um, uh, particularism and being clearly out in the public square. Um, I think there's lots of different models. I think someone like Avi Weiss, our teacher, is also, you know, clearly a model of what that looks like. Um, I think that, you know, Dr. King was that kind of model, clearly. Um, and as someone who grounded his whole activism in the religious language that he came from and, you know, did not uh, shy away from that in any way but used it as a source of strength. Um, and so I think that there are people, you know, like Jim Wallace, who, you know, in Sojourners is doing that, or um, Khalid Latif, who's, uh, who's an imam at uh, NYU, who's a really emerging public voice in the Muslim community, or Tahara Ahmad, who's at Northwestern, um, who you know from the documentary, right? Um, so uh, I think that there are people who are doing that. Um, and I think we're also living in an age right now where it's, you know, the question of like what, what position you occupy in media is a really interesting one. I mean, um, seeing that, uh, did, I, did I see this, Jerry Falwell Jr. endorsed Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. Made me ha scratch my head a little bit, but um, as a, as a uh, clergy person. Um, but, you know, thinking of Jerry Falwell as somebody who sort of really built, he, he built his influence on televangelism. And I don't think the televangelism is quite where it's at now. Like social media is something different. And so I wonder, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure. I think in some ways there, the people that you're thinking about are, I mean, you're trying to do this also in your own life, right? But who are um, visible in different ways, but aren't necessarily building mass televangelist, you know, uh, followings. Um, the power is coming, is getting localized and more sort of granular. So I, I'm not, yeah, I appreciate the question. I think it's a good one. Rabbi. My, my thread was your previous question. Um, your language was reminding me of uh, Peter Block's book, The Power of Community, yeah. where he talks about the, you know, the definition of who makes up community, the consumer versus the citizen. And, um, you know, I, I, I often think of that in the, as a congregational rabbi, in the, in the, you know, we have these consumers of a synagogue who want something, a bar mitzvah, a life cycle event, some, they want something, they want to pay for it, they want to take it, they want to go. Whereas a citizen of the community doesn't want to take from the community, wants to give to the community. Yeah. How do I not just financially, but of you know, uh, wants to plug in, if you will. Yeah. And, and, and uh, that was the language. I was yeah. There's a lot that uh, I'm, I'm glad that Baruch Shikivanti that I thought of a lot of this stuff before I had discovered Peter Block. Um, <laughs> but yeah, a lot of the stuff about questions and about citizenship, and um, it's a great book. Um, he, if, if you're interested, um, just a book called Community. It's got a red cover. He's lives in Cincinnati and has done the uh, yeah amazing work there. So, um, yeah, I, I think you know I, I have a running a running argument with um, a, a dear friend who's also a, a rabbi, Dan Smokler. Um, about what's the um, a colleague in Hillel, who we, we, we've had we've had this debate going for a number of years now about what metaphor we we sort of think of Jewish identity in, um, and he likes a, a family metaphor, right? That being a Jew is being a member of an extended family and family relationships because you know those are close relationships, and so and and that we know that you know the more Jewish friends you have, the Jewish interactions you have the greater you sense you're being part of the Jewish community um, and the Jewish people. And for whatever reason, I've always resisted the family metaphor, and I'm more partial to a citizenship metaphor. And maybe it's because you know uh, there's more choice involved. Um, you can choose to be a citizen. I mean, you're born into citizenship, but you can also choose your citizenship, um, which is you can become part of a family too, but it's different. Um, but I think there's also a notion of civic obligations. My obligations to my extended family are different, right, uh, than my civic obligations that I might have. And civic obligations are a little more sort of undifferentiated because you are a fellow citizen, not because we have any particular relation. Um, and so I think, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure that either of us is right. I think it's probably both. But if you don't mind, I, 
much more simply than yours, I, I often think of the metaphor as the as a power grid, electric power grid, that the power grid works in this country, specifically on the East Coast, not because you pull out of it, but because you plug into it. Mm. And that the power of the citizen is one who, taking that Peter Block idea, which clearly I'm, I'm moved by, you plug into and you put your electricity into the grid yeah. so that somebody in the next state over can, can pull from it mm. um, rather than uh, electricity that you take out of the grid. Mm. That's what the power. That's that's the power of the right. And if one person goes down, there's a whole blackout that's that right. covers that's, that covers the East Coast. That was my example. That's right. The great the great blackout yeah. of, uh, of the whole East Coast. I was in the middle of giving blood when when that blackout happened. It was very scary. <laughs> and the needle in me and the power went out. <laughs> but yeah, over here and then here. You passed the budget it's here. All the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's a good but, start. But, <laughs> but you know, we're, we're discussing coming to believe and working together, and yet we have leadership that we have elected who aren't in the lead for us at all. Mm -hmm. And I know it's there's got to be a synergy that happens, but uh, you know, I've been trying in my darndest mm -hmm. to be thinking and and using a listening heart mm -hmm. when people you know speak their politics and yet the people who have potential to be our leaders are not really giving that kind of an example yeah. they want to be served and it's difficult I do believe that um, when we are raising children or just as um, citizens caring in a community, you know, be you um, a grandparent or just a congregant, mm -hmm. to really help move our country forward yeah. when we don't have, um, I don't see any, any real openings to try and, and make it better. Well, I would recommend I would recommend getting Palmer's book. I mean, he actually has like things that he recommends of like how citizens need to be meeting in small groups um, and practices to actually you know to, to, to work on. I think that um, look, you know, we, we part of this is uh, Robert Putnam's actually his most recent book is a book called Our Kids gets you back to we there. It's a book called Our Kids, and it's a wonderful book um, where he compares um, his growing up in Port Clinton, Ohio, uh, you know, near uh, Cleveland, um, in the 1950s. He compares his experience and social science data from that time with what, uh, what the data and stories from today of kids growing up in the same town and then from around um, tell, you know, tells us about growing up in America. And one of the most interesting and saddest things is that we have created these feedback loops where in the 1950s, regardless of where you were born on the socioeconomic chart and regardless of race, um, upward social mobility was possible and happened, right? And for, you know, um, I think of like my own father, right, who uh, his parents didn't go to college, were immigrants. He went to college, you know, went to graduate school, was able, and that's probably the story of some of you in this room, is my guess. Um, that was a that was a story of upward economic mobility that was across uh, lines of race and class. So no matter where you were born, you know, how much money your parents had, the gap between rich and poor was not as big, and everybody was able to move up. Today, um, depending on where you're born on that ladder, is indicative of where you will stay. Right? And we Jews are just as culpable in some of this as anybody else. Right? Um, we have moved to neighborhoods that are designed to keep people like us living in those neighborhoods in terms of socioeconomics. Or we, and, and then the schools become the feedback loop for that, right? because the property taxes depend on the schools. So you want to move where somewhere, somewhere there's good schools, you've got to have enough money to get into that zone. right? And so you have the stratification that happens. And so if you are poor in this country, you are pretty likely to stay poor. 
And if you're rich in this country, you're likely to probably to stay rich. Um, and so Putnam also has some um, policy, specific policy um, views that he advocates in that book as well. Um, I would also say that, you know, to me, and this is my own sort of political um, uh, pet project, is um, uh, there was for a moment, there was a fourth Democratic candidate uh, in the race, Lawrence Lessig, uh, who's a Harvard professor who started um, uh, a project called Mayday, Mayday Pack. Um, and his whole thing is about um, creating independent redistricting uh, in all 50 states. Um, because the way that we have, you know, the way that we do it now in most states is that uh, redistricting happens by the party that's in power, right? And so then you create safe districts, and so then you get situations where you can add up all the votes for Congress in the last election. Um, the majority of votes were for Democrats, but the vast majority of congressmen are Republicans because of the way that um, districts are carved out, right? So if you took the total aggregate vote for the country, and then that's not, if we had a, if we had a parliamentary system, right, we would have a different looking Congress than we have now because we have this particular way that we draw a district. And so, um, uh, you know, in terms of fixes that we, that we can be trying to work on, that's one, right, that is not about your political values necessarily. I think it's something everybody can probably agree on is that we should have a, a democracy that represents us, regardless of your political party, right? And, um, and it's where we literally, like, you know, good people need to be organizing and good people, and, and we, have to, we have to spend the time. And it's going to be harder because we don't live in those mixed communities anymore. And we don't mix as much as we did, we did before, so we've got to do more than we, than we did before. Do you want to get the last word? Well, one of the things with the political process is one of the things that democracy requires almost is an educated electorate. Mm. And the problem is very, very uneducated electorate. Mm -hmm. And therefore, therefore, it is very difficult to, um, to see what the outcome is going to be since you have people who so do not understand how the process works. Right. right. Um, well, <laughs> um, so the work, we have our work cut out for us. Uh, it's going to take a lot of resilience, and hopefully you know, we can draw some, some strength from it tonight. I really appreciate the chance Thank to... Thank you, Thank you.